Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the History of the Congo. Episode 7, Arab Incursions into the Congo Basin. Last time we left the Eastern Congo in the aftermath of a war between the Tabwe people, headed by Insama, and the Arabs as a whole, with Tipu Tip as the main aggressor. We saw how Tip met Livingstone and protected him, leaving him at Juji. He would remain there until Stanley discovered him three years later. Tip's support for the interesting and harmless European visitors in the East at this time, however, would soon represent a much more impactful agreement for the people living there, but that is for the near future. The post-war situation and the Arabs' relationship with the incumbent tribes was evolving. They had officially been in open war with the Tabwe tribe, and several caravans from other Arab traders had been raided and destroyed in the conflict. This was so disruptive that the Sultan of Zanzibar recalled Tipu Tip in order to stem the hostilities, but by then it was too late. The war had made the comparative differences in weapons clear. Arab traders were now more willing to exploit their superior technology in combat, and extortion was becoming an easier way to obtain ivory than the fragile and sometimes lengthy trading negotiations. More ominously, the new protection racket was spreading west as the supply of ivory east of the lakes had all but stopped. This meant that the elephant herds had been largely wiped out, but this wasn't the way it was looked at at the time. Ivory demand in Europe, the Americas and the Far East hadn't thinned, so the Arabs just travelled further east into today's DRC. There was no thought of the diminishing elephant population whatsoever. There was equally little thought of the people living there, the tribes inland hadn't had contact with outsiders and guns before, and the unfamiliarity of modern weapons and the newly militaristic approach of the Arabs was soon to have dire consequences. After some time, the Sultan of Zanzibar was happy for Tipu Tip to return once more to trading. Three years after the Insama confrontation, Tip left Zanzibar on his third expedition, and by expedition, of course, we mean getting ivory by whatever means necessary. By late 1872, his caravan travelled south of Lake Tanganyika and re-entered the territory controlled by his old adversary, Nsama. But at this time, things were very different. There was no greeting, or posturing, or war. They simply demanded and received a small quantity of ivory in tribute. Whilst the amount was not huge, the significance of the change of the relationship for the people of today's eastern DRC was huge. The border tribes were now effectively vassal states, required to pay tribute when Tipu Tip arrived. This was extended as the caravan travelled further into the region, and although Tip's memoirs state that he was on friendly terms with the Bemba people and the surrounding chiefs, the relationship was pretty much a protection racket. Ivory was to be received, or there were dire consequences. At this time, the eastern DRC is being described as literally swarming with elephants, which provided all the incentive Tip needed to continue travelling. Geographically, the next powerful tribe to the Tabwe was a people openly hostile to Nsama, headed by Chief Mwonga. This was an old and powerful tribe with trade links to the copper mines in Katanga, which sits in the southeastern DRC today. They also had trade links to the Portuguese in Luanda on the Atlantic coast. Mwonga's full title was actually Kasambe Mwongo, and he was the chief of the Lunda tribe, who had been established for hundreds of years as we have seen. We don't have a written record of the Lunda, but Livingstone had met the previous chief about five years prior to Tip's arrival. He describes the meeting as 
The present Kasembe has a heavy, uninteresting countenance, and his eyes have an outward squint. He smiled but once during the day, and that was pleasant enough, though the cropped ears, chopped hands and human skulls of the gate made me indisposed to look on anything with favour. Kasembe's only smile was elicited by the dwarf, who we can assume was the entertainer, making some uncouth antics before him. His executioner also came to look. He had a broad lunder sword on his arm, and a curious scissor-like instrument at his neck for cropping ears. On saying to him that this was nasty work, he smiled, and so did many who were not sure of their ears at that moment. This is hardly the description of the chief of a great kingdom we expect to find. Anyone with their own executioner instantly spreads alarm in my book. I am not sure we can necessarily use this one description as any indication of former chiefs. History suggests that brutal empires rarely last this long without some uprising. Even the Roman Empire had its Caligulas and Neros, so I put forward, with no evidence at all, that he was perhaps not the best of their chiefs. Livingstone provides us with a description of the court, recounting that it was enclosed by a bamboo fence, on top of which sat the human skulls, which were previously stuck there to serve as a warning to potential rebellion. The court sat in the capital, which by now was estimated at about a square mile in size, with hundreds of huts scattered amongst the cassava. The chief himself sat on a seat of leopard and lion skin, wearing a garment of blue and white stripes, with a voluminous red border. When Tip visited the Lunder, it was in the middle of a tropical rainstorm, and the caravan travelled slowly. The Kazembe seized his opportunity and attacked and killed the leading edge of the group, stealing goods and muskets. The Arabs were startled, as they thought the Lunda were at odds with Nsama and so would be allies. But the Lunda position was that although Nsama had been defeated, they were a different people. The Lunda intended to show the Arabs that all visitors would be killed. This greatly riled Tibu Tip and more men were called in with haste. Unfortunately for us, Tip's diaries don't detail the forthcoming war, but in a few days the Arabs had won, and a puppet Kasambi was installed. This new Kasambi was actually a prior Kasambi who had fled to Insama's land for protection after refusing to be circumcised. Tip's diaries state that the whole of the Lunda was conquered, but looking at this now, this is not quite true. The empire of hundreds of years was not taken in a few months. The eastern part had certainly been reduced to a vassal state, but the Chokwe in the west remained powerful and continued trading in their own right. We shall meet them later, but for now the Lunda chiefs in the east remained in place. But this wouldn't last long. The final blow to Lunda power was not from the outside. It was, as with the Kingdom of the Congo, delivered from within. The scorpion continues to strike. After subjugating the Tabwe and the Western Lunda, Tibu Tip's authority in the region was becoming ever more widely accepted. In Katanga, today's southeastern tip of DRC, the Garangaze people in the recently formed Yeke Kingdom sent an emissary. They were led by Emsiri, and they were a powerful people in these turbulent times. They had control of the copper mines, and enjoyed access to the Portuguese traders in the west, enabling access to muskets independent of the Arabs. Emsiri was also politically aware, and had married into the Luba Empire and maintained family access with the western of Mbundu in today's Angola. This secured his access to the all-important power accessory, guns. Displaying his savvy, Siri offered tribute to Tibutip in advance of him travelling to see him. 
This was in the form of nine ivory tusks. Although this just represented the start, bargaining did allow him to stay largely unmolested by the Arabs. This provides an example of the Congolese empires finding a way to coexist with the Arabs' incursions. But remember the name of Siri. He provides a real example of how this compliance would not deter the scramble for land that was about to become. Although this desire for Katangan independence would never really go away. After this gift, Tip and his caravan travelled nearly 200 kilometres west, passing through the land of the small Warua tribe, who seemed more interested in the local tobacco, which I think had marijuana-type properties, than war. The land here was rich in fish and ducks, and more importantly for Tip, elephants, who would come to the lakeshore. I'm sure that if a conservationist could travel back in time, they would be amazed at the quantity of wildlife here before humanity had culled it. This favoured land attracted traders, and there is evidence of trade routes stretching to and from Madagascar, which supplied virembi, a sort of textile, which was often used as currency in these parts. Another traded good was tree oil, but interestingly we note that ivory is not mentioned. Extensive trade routes covering thousands of miles had developed, but they were not mentioned or recognised by the Arabs and Europeans, as nothing of value was traded as far as they were concerned. As in the West, the indigenous peoples valued goods were of little value to Arabs. The local economic system was not able to trade with the Arabs on anything like equality. To obtain much sought over Arab guns, they had to hunt elephants for ivory, or, as we have seen before, conquer their enemies to sell as slaves. Finally, Tip settled about five hours' march from the lake shore, sitting at the source of the Lualuba River, near today's Mlongo. Geographically, he was only the same distance southwest of the Luba capital, but he makes no reference to the great Luba tribe, who would have now been sure to have known of the Arab presence. He does, though, recall warring relatives, Mrongo Tambwe and Mrongo Kasange. This presented a golden opportunity for Tip, as these rivals were evenly matched. If he was careful, he could add his men to reinforce one side, giving them superiority, providing him huge leverage over the side that he was allied to. Initially, Kasange made favourable approaches, but after a small dispute and some limited fighting, he spent the night listening to Kasange's war drums. His people were calling for aid and preparing for war. They attacked the Arab caravan in the morning, but quickly Tip's guns answered the aggression. As we have seen before, Kasange's people withdrew. Soon after, he heard drums again and prepared to fight. This time, though, Warua guides told him to stand down. They understood the drums. These were Tambwe's people and despite his scepticism, we can see direct evidence of the drums communicating across the lands effectively here. The Arabs had the guns, but they still understood very little of the local environment. Without local help, the Arabs would not have been able to conquer. After this battle, life was more comfortable, but Tip was restless. Despite the encouragement of another Arab trader to remain, he was convinced that the unexplored land to the east would be fruitful. He left this trader, nicknamed Merikani after the American cotton he traded, and travelled further west. He traversed across the Lualuba River, flowing relentlessly northwards. He was heading further and further into today's DRC, and even crossed the River Lamami. Tip describes this as the land of the Irande, but this land maps exactly the territories of the centuries-old Luba Empire. I haven't seen this connection, but putting Tip's third journey and the Luba capital near Kabongo today makes this a perfect fit. Here Tip might have provided us with the first written record of the independent Luba Kingdom.
He describes the land as housing an astonishingly large number of towns, which were countless in number. The houses were built in rows with a large hut in the middle, which the craftsmen assembled in to weave veramba. It was noted that it would take six to eight hours to walk through a town. This was a densely populated and highly organised society. Manufacturing goods from raw materials were brought from Madagascar. Tip notes that the Warua and other tribes would bring fresh fish to trade. Other travellers would come and provide gifts in the way of goats, stuffs, slaves, beads and vegetables for a period of two years until they were allowed to settle, whereby others would arrive in the region and they would take a share of the new arrivals goods by way of settlement permission. There was no direct purchasing of land, more a passing of gifts until the right to settle was earned. If this debt was unpaid, the punishment was harsh. Even in death a body would not be buried, but would be left hanging in a tree with his possessions below him for debtors to collect. Disappointingly for Tip, there was no ivory here, and although it was a populous, prosperous empire with an extensive trading network, it was perceived as having very little value. We will never know how this central kingdom could have developed if left to compete only with other African tribes. Curiously, Tip never fired his guns, and although they were attacked by small groups, they maintained that they were mortars for crushing foodstuffs. With this deceit intact, he headed west to Oterra, where he would definitely have crossed the heartland of the Luba kingdom. This was of no interest to Tip, though, but he had heard that elephants, and therefore ivory, were plentiful. This turned out to be true, and two to three tusks could be traded for veramba, textiles and red coral, which meant nothing to the Arabs. The tribes exploited what they perceived as a very favourable trading relationship, but within only 12 days, the ivory was sold. The people had capitalised on this fool swapping valuable goods for useless ivory in very short order. Tip continued his travels throughout today's eastern DRC, meeting other tribes, but by then his reputation was well known. He was invited to kingdoms to trade ivory for goods, and he obliged. One such people were the Shensis, who followed the normal relationship with Tip, and were keen to form an alliance so they could defeat their rivals, the Wataterra. By this time, though, Tip had had an abundance of ivory and was set for home. This caused much anger in the Shensis, and after a small conflict, the war drums began to sound. These rang throughout the night, and in the morning the Shensis attacked. Two of Tip's Wanyamwezi, the tribe of Zanzibar, were hit by arrows, and hundreds of men closed in with throwing spears. Panic set in and the guns were fired. In a measure of their surprise, the attackers fled, but soon returned, asking for Tip to return their fallen comrades. They believed that the Thundersticks had simply caused their fallen to faint. Faced with such frightening new weapons, the tribe accepted defeat, and a stooge was set up as a chief. After a magic trick identifying the competents as allies or foe, by his stooge looking up or down as they passed, the Shensis were convinced Tip had supernatural powers, and made him the formal sovereign of their territory. This was a turning point. Tibu Tip now ruled over a vast area seeking tribute from all the other tribes around, and within a fortnight he had accumulated 200 tusks. It is not specifically mentioned, but it is clear that the hunting of elephants by the tribes to satisfy Tip now accelerated. Dissenting tribes were overwhelmed by the power of Tip's forces as well as his guns. An example of this is the fate of the combatants against a small expeditionary force, led by his uncle, which was sent to gather, or extort, ivory. As was the norm, this turned to plundering, even though this was resolutely discouraged by Tip. The small party was attacked, defeated, and eaten. Yes, I did say eaten, as cannibalism was a frequent practice in this region, 
although strongly opposed by the Arabs. As a result, Tip felt that he had to set an example. He assembled a huge force, which he states as 100,000 men, although this may be an exaggeration. This force utterly defeated the tribe. Homes were looted and burned, and the women were captured. All of the men were slaughtered, and despite Tip's protests, they too were consumed, under the rationale that it was no different to eating goat. I mention this to add some context to the way of life which so shocked Western audiences as we shall see later. More pertinently, Tip was now de facto master of a whole region, although we should remember that this was based solely on military force. He had no interest in social or geographical exploration. All he really wanted was ivory. After this conquest, he heard contact of another Arab who had settled on the Lualuba and made his way to see him. What he found astonished him. In the capital of a tribal chief named Mwini de Gumba, the Arabs had settled and helped to create a flourishing town. The well-watered lands had allowed them to cultivate broad rice fields to such an extent that food was abundant. The people here enjoyed such plenty that they nicknamed the town, called Anyangwi, New Bengal. A city of such allure drew the attention of the aforementioned Cameron, the British explorer. To the disfavour of the other Arabs in town, Tip struck up a relationship with Cameron when he arrived in February 1874. Tip supported Cameron's travels west by providing guides and companions through his conquered territory until Cameron pushed further west, spurred on by the sight of a Portuguese tunic. Cameron eventually arrived at the west coast, in today's Angola, 18 months later in November 1875. He was the first European to cross the African continent. Tip still saw Europeans as interesting distractions on foolhardy adventures, but others saw them as a threat. In many ways, Tip's contemporaries' attitudes to the Europeans were correct. This wonderful city, as described by Livingston, Tip and Cameron, was obliterated only ten years later, during a siege in which thousands of homes were destroyed. This would be during the Arab-European War as Europeans encroached all the way from the west coast, but we shall see this later. For now, the Europeans in the east were powerless adventurers, who represented at best a distracting interest but this masked the attention that they would bring from the industrialised and ambitious Europeans and Americans. These explorers brought new focus to the region, beyond ivory. Exploring the lands of African kingdoms was the new great adventure, and the public at home and America were eager to hear of these undiscovered lands. The Europeans who travelled here faced dangers of disease and hostility, and the counts of their travels made them celebrities throughout Europe, there was, though, one explorer who had an impact head and shoulders above all of these on the Congo region. Not only during his first expedition, but from the end of it and ever after. He was to connect the eastern Congo to the Atlantic coast in the eyes of the outside world, and would become, however unwittingly, embroiled in the Congo for the rest of his life. Through his diaries we find the earliest documented account of central DRC, as the Lualuba stops its northwards flow to take a sharp left at Kisangani. His published accounts drew the attention of the rest of the world to the region, and unwittingly he changed the land forever. His name was Henry Morton Stanley, and although he is a much maligned figure today, he had a huge impact. Next time we'll meet him. So until then, thanks for listening, and safe travels. Mm -hmm.